Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Sparking Change Movements in Snowpiercer. I'm Paula Sizik, and today I'm joined by Director of Organizational Design, Daria Lombroso. Hello. And Senior Director of Organizational Design, Nick Parrish. All aboard. We are members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. Every month, we like to take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations. We believe that together, any change is possible which is why this episode we're going to be looking at the revolution that occurs aboard the Wilford Industries train in Snowpiercer. If you haven't watched Snowpiercer, spoilers from here on out. It's set in a dystopian near future where the earth has frozen over and the last remnants of humanity survive on a perpetually running train. The struggling masses are confined to the back of the train, losing their children to the demands of the upper classes in the front. But Curtis has a plan to lead a revolt that will take them to the very front of the train and gain control of the sacred engine. I remember when this when this came out, I was at an organization that, that had just gotten a new chief exec. And his chief lieutenant, who was also had also been brought in, used the train metaphor constantly. Oh, the CEO's got everybody's getting on the train. He's laid out the track. Are you gonna get on the train? Are you are you gonna jump on the train? And I just seen Snowpiercer and I remember thinking, Boy, I don't wanna be on that kind of train. Okay, I was going to say, but was he specifically making an an allusion to this train, the Snowpiercer train, or was it just a general train that he wanted everybody on board? I think it was more of a general train, but I had just seen the film and I thought, oh, I'd like to stay behind at the station, please. Snowpiercer, just like any change movement starts with a vision of how things could be different. Curtis promises the lower classes, whom he thinks of as his people, that they'll have more equality if they can ultimately take the engine. So I would ask the two of you, how do you create and communicate a vision for change? How do you get people to actually believe that their situation can change in the first place, that they're not forever condemned to be at the back of the train? Well, I think what you can tell from really early on in the film is that Curtis, who's played by Chris Evans, has already gained a lot of the trust of people who are with him in the back of the train, right? He's he's sort of like an elected leader, even though he clearly hasn't been. He's just been able to to gain trust of those around him. And you can get the sense that that happens because he actually listens to the needs of those around him. And kind of looks out for them. So I think when we're talking about getting people to buy into a vision or even creating that vision to begin with, it comes from listening to those who are closest to the needs and really building a vision based on the needs of those around you who you are there to serve. I think a lot of film tropes, too, would have put Curtis as the one who 
is on the front lines agitating with the leaders about what needs to happen. Whereas what makes this maybe a little more successful as a metaphor is that he's urging patience and urging timing and urging a lot of the things that, that need to line up correctly for everything to flow. Now isn't the time. Well, when is the time? Soon. So that actually leads to my next question, which is when, right? That's actually a big question in Snowpiercer. I want to say it's the first 30 minutes of the movie. When do we start the revolution? And he forces the team essentially to wait until the right time. What are some signs that we see in organizations that they're actually ready for the change, that people are, they have the capacity and the willingness to try something different? Very fortunately, the organizational culture and the changing needs of an organization are not quite like the fictional such setup we have here where there's a, a violent insurrection that takes place inside this small society. Usually not so dire, thankfully, yes. Yes. Uh, but I think one of the things that, that we can let our listeners in on is that one of our early litmus tests for complicated work, and all of the work is complicated, but some of it's more complicated than, than others, uh, for very complicated work is whether the leadership is, is ready to change and, and whether the leadership is ready to sort of admit its complicity in creating and upholding the status quo. And that certainly is in many ways a precursor to change. Now, leadership also can be leaving. The change can occur when when folks at the top move on to something else and they're on to their next thing. And then all of a sudden everyone looks around and sees not only a vacuum in, in the organizational leadership structure, but also some things that can be fixed now that that person has moved on to something else. So I think that is one of the major precipitating factors that, that shows readiness is a team that's able to admit that there are issues that need to be resolved or the, the recent absence of that individual that might have stood in the way or that individuals. Yeah, I think also often we see change, and we've definitely seen this in the past year within organizations, be in direct response to some sort of either external factor or drastic shift in the environment around the team. And I think in the case of folks on the train, for, or for Curtis, it was, I don't know what to refer to them as, the people on the train. It was the moment when Tanya's son was taken away from her, Octavia Spencer's character. And for him, that sort of seemed to be the final straw. Like, there was no more waiting after that because the situation had become so dire and it seems like someone who he really cared about was being impacted. So I think there's sort of that, the need to have some measure around the timing for change, but also an ability to respond and react to the circumstances that are changing around you. Now, obviously, in, in narratives like this, we look for change. We look for the main character, you know, undergoing change and all the characters undergoing some kind of change. That's what makes it interesting for us. And certainly those were precipitating factors. That loss of innocence was a precipitating factor for Curtis's change on multiple occasions. Of course, the opposing idea from change is inertia, right? It is keeping the status quo. It is doing things the way that we've always been doing it. And that's actually one of the mantras that we repeatedly hear from the train's overlords, essentially the people in first class, the soldiers and, and the leaders of the opposition. It is the idea of balance and of order. Everybody is preordained to their place and everybody remains in their place. Order, order is the barrier that holds back the frozen death. 
We must all of us, on this train of life, remain in our allotted station. We must, each of us, occupy our preordained particular position. In fact, if you upset the delicate ecosystem, right, the delicate balance, then you are ensuring death for everybody in the cold, icy world outside. Again, hopefully we are not in our organizations facing the possibility of cold, icy death in a cruel, unforgiving world. But how do you deal with that fear, right? It can feel if you're in an organization like like any change will destroy what it is you've built or, or ruin everything. Everybody's going to have to go either clean up or find new jobs. So how do you deal with that fear that change is going to destroy everything? How do you convince teams to overcome or overthrow that inertia? There's a wonderful book that's just come out by Sarah Jaffe called Work Won't Love You Back, how devotion to our jobs keeps us exploited, exhausted, and alone. And in a sense, we are meant to be in many organizations like those folks on the train that believe there's no alternative, that believe that there's nothing outside but desolation and waste. The only reason that we're worthy of love and we're worthy of respect is because of our job title and the hours that we work and the time that we spend. So organizations on a larger, many of them are guilty of perpetuating that by referring to their employees as one big family, or we treat each other like family and these sort of de-individualizing fictions that they purport. I think there's also, you know, the body of research we refer to often at Nobel that speaks to the idea that change is loss and that as humans, we're really averse to loss, right? Especially because it's very difficult for us to see and acknowledge gains in the same way. So when we're looking at any given change, we're really easily able to identify the negative impact of it and less able to identify the ways it will positively impact us. And I think in the case of, of the train, right, you have very few positives. Even if this revolution is successful and Curtis is able, able to take over the engine, they're still stuck on a train for all they know, right? There's no getting off the train in their realm of, of reality for at least most of the film. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Good point, Daria. But for right now, I do want us to consider how does being in a closed system, right, like the train where there, there is no possibility of going off, there's no like outside influence coming in, how does that compare with an open system, which is hopefully what most organizations are in today, right? Like they are within a larger ecosystem. There's an us versus them that's very um, damaging and dangerous and violent because of the fact that it's a closed uh, ecosystem and there's no external support. There's no way for for those who are suffering to voice their suffering, to uh, move through it and move out of it. And I think if we're looking at open ecosystems like organizations, there's a world that we exist within and support systems that exist around us that we often are able to leverage to to kind of further an agenda or further a more positive outcome. Another great example of this is the conflict that people such as astronauts undergo. Uh, a journalist named Amanda Ripley has just written a book called High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. And that book looks at the different types and precipitating factors of, of very intense conflict situations, specifically looking at individuals that were simulating a trip to Mars, for example, as as a case study and how these conflicts develop and how they're resolved. Oftentimes we get 
into such tight working relationships, such tight working rhythms, such critical projects that it can feel like there is no way out of these, that we're in a closed ecosystem and there's no possible alternative. And within that, that style of problem solving, when you can't find a new job, you can't leave the room because this is you know the once in a lifetime appointment to the group to do this thing. Obviously not all of us are in those sorts of dire straits or those for many of us uh, once in a lifetime opportunities. But those do require a different level of problem solving nuance and a different level of negotiation and awareness of how we interrelate. Going back to the book about the astronauts being trapped and having to work at an argument, I don't suppose she covered what happens when the astronauts are trapped and there's also a predatory alien that is hunting down the members of the team one by one and how they act in that circumstance. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? We're some real pretty shit now, man. You finished. Game over, man. It's game over. Go, we're going to need a small child to help us resolve the situation in the sequel. <laughs> One uh, dystopian sci-fi adventure at a time. Building on these ideas of a balance of preordination, we also see a lot of rituals and stories that are a part of the Snowpiercer, a part of the train, right? We see soldiers celebrating the New Year when going over the Yekaterina Bridge. We see the children being indoctrinated into the cult of Wilford in the classroom. What happens if the engine stops? We all freeze and die. But will it stop or will it stop? No, no! Can you tell us why? The engine is eternal, yes! The engine is forever, yes! Rumble, rumble, rattle, rattle, who is the reason? How do rituals and stories impact change movements, both, again, the, the inertia, the existing status quo, as well as getting people to move out of that status quo? I mean, I think both ritual and story are crucial to any change movement, both those we've seen kind of in social movements over time and within our organizations, starting with storytelling, right? Getting people to buy into that vision of change starts with being able to tell a compelling story around why it needs to happen to begin with and the part that people can play in the change itself. And you have to tell that over and over and over again, right, in order for that message to really be heard by people within an organization and for them to feel bought into it. And I imagine that the same would be true if we were all trapped on a train, right, that at first it would feel like hell. Wilford soldiers came and they took everything. It's a thousand people in an iron box. No food, no water. After a month, we ate the week. Especially if you're in the back of the train. But that over time, you have to create these rituals, create these stories to bring purpose to your existence, to bring purpose into the ways that you interact with one another and the ways that you really spend your time. And I think that part is true within organizations as well, that Ritual and story really help us to cement our purpose. So, Dara, you've just given me a really great idea for our next Nobel offsite. I think we should all get on a no. train. <laughs> Dara's point, I think I want to elaborate on that because I think it's really important. Many new leaders, I believe, underestimate the amount of repetition that's involved in 
in communicating their agenda and their priorities and their vision and all the other pieces that are critical to to landing this work, especially now that our communications channels are so fragmented and communications oftentimes happens in a clipped way more so than usual. But I, th I think leaders should should be saying what they're all about until they're blue in the face. It should really feel like over repetition to them before it, it feels like something that, that others can take for granted. We do hear a lot of repetition around the stories of failure. We hear several times of the failed revolutions. Pay attention, this tableau will surely be on the exam. 15 years ago, in the third year of the train, seven passengers tried to stop Wilford's miracle train and go outside. And what do we call this event, Magdalena? The Revolt of the Seven. Very good, long before you were born. Of course, they failed to stop the train. Instead, they jumped out of the running train. Here they come now. And it serves as a reminder to, again, stay in your place. Don't try and rock the boat or rock the train, as, as the case may be. If teams have already experienced some sort of failure of change, right, like they've attempted to revolutionize the organization before, how do you change their minds? How do you convince them that this time the revolution will be different? This time you will be able to seize the engine. Most of the time when we look at failure, we look at it as this sort of singular event, right? You tried something, you failed at it. And we really like to encourage more of a learning mindset around those moments of failure. I don't know how much that applies to those in the Snowpiercer example, but I think within organizations, like most of <laughs> most of the failures that we see in in the work that we do are ones where we are able to really pull out some learnings that we can apply to next time. And that means that we're able to look at change as more of an evolution rather than like a pivot or a hard turn on what we're already doing. It accounts for the things that we've tried in the past. It doesn't ignore them. So I think that's kind of the first important piece. The second is we often think of cynics within organizations as people who are optimists who have been disappointed in the past, right? Or idealists who've been disappointed in the past. People who really did believe change was possible and things didn't move quickly enough or they got burned in the process. And now they're taking a more cynical approach to change moving forward. And with those folks within organizations, you really just need to, first of all, unpack what went wrong in the past and acknowledge it, honor the fact that things didn't go well before and that there were failed attempts to change and bring them into the process. They can really be some of the most useful people in a change journey when they are on board and when they feel ownership over the change rather than feeling victim to it. All narrative is selection and all narrative is not just what you put in, but what you leave out. And we don't hear anything in the narrative about what's left out uh, of these revolution stories. We don't hear a lot about that. We're not told about their children that they left behind or you know, the sacrifices that they made. And similarly, we're not told at all about some of the earlier, in terms of how Gilliam lost his limbs, for example. We're not told about a lot of that. And so that selective, that selective omission on the part of the filmmaker, and in the same way that an organizational leader may be thought of as a film, filmmaker, that selective omission goes a lot to helping people, help shade the narrative that people form. 
one of the reasons why this podcast is so effective, I think, as a teaching tool and as a way for us to talk about what we do, because leaders are constantly in charge of managing the narrative. And leaders are constantly in charge of deciding what stays in and what stays out. And in order to look at the past and to frame it in a way that is optimistic and people can believe in, oftentimes you have to you have to leave things out. Speaking of bringing people along, we actually see characters joining Curtis's movement for different reasons or not joining for different reasons, right? So Edgar looks up to Curtis almost as a personal hero. He's got a real connection. Like he, he really looks up to Curtis and that's why he's motivated to join this revolution. Paul, on the other hand, stays. He feels like his place is in the back of the train. We're going to the front. Come with us. All right, you're going to the front? Yeah, man, but uh, no way, man. My place is here, all right? Here, making this crap, why? Mason, who initially starts as the opposition, who essentially starts as the bad guy, comes along with them simply because she wants to live. I can guarantee you safe passage. Why the fuck would I trust you? Because I want to live. So you'd sell out Welford the Benevolent. That's her reasoning. So how do you manage these different motivations of individuals who might be accompanying you on this journey towards change? It feels like what what's key here, Paul, is that a choice is made. Rather than focus too hard on which that choice is, whether you're going to be a key part of this change and an, uh, a leader in the change, or you're going to continue to do what you do, what what's important is that a choice is made. And the bad outcome is is an individual not feeling like they have space in that system. It's fine that Paul wants to stay behind and make protein bars for people. And certainly the, the Mason is coerced, as I'm sure many executives with golden handcuffs and a huge pay package that's, you know, I think about a merger and acquisition type situation where someone's got an earn out. That's a specific type, type of financial coercion. They're on board, even though they may not be fully spiritually there to, to lead this change and to continue with it. But what's important is they've made the choice and they've committed to it. I mean, I think to Nick's point, the choice there is so important for people to feel like they do have agency in change is really critical. But you also have to acknowledge that when you're in a workplace, people are there first and foremost because they're performing a job, right? And I think a lot of the times, especially now in more of the knowledge economy where people are more inclined to take on purpose-driven work, we can sort of forget the fact that actually we're we're here because we're hired to do a job and we're paid to do a job, wait, right? Wait, I thought you guys were just joining me on this podcast because you like spending time with me and talking about movies. Are you telling me are you telling me this isn't the case? I'm tracking my hours, Paula. You are yes. get an invoice. Looking um, for residuals. <laughs> no, I mean, I think oftentimes we speak to leaders and there's this sort of assumption that everyone is here just for the mission, right? And oftentimes you do see that mission alignment. We want to see more of that mission alignment within organizations, but I think it can also sort of dismiss the reality that for a lot of people, especially as we get more towards frontline workers and those out in the field, that the the work you're doing is in order to survive as a human, right? In this society, in this world that we live in. In order to not be cast out into the cold, frozen tundra. Yeah, exactly. And so I think there is a degree of that, you know, looking out for yourself that is going to be true, that is going to be human nature in any given organization for any given change. And I think it's it's more useful to acknowledge that than to ignore it and to think that, 
you know, it's just about mission alignment. Like people need to understand what they as an individual will gain through the change that's occurring. Now there's one character we haven't talked about who not only isn't opting in for the change, but is actively working to sabotage the change. And that is Gilliam. Now at the beginning of the movie, he is positioned as a respected leader in the back of the train, maybe even as a a mentor, if you will, to Curtis, but he's actually in league with Wilford and has been subtly sabotaging all of their efforts the entire time. If you're wrong, we could be finished before we even start. I think we should be patient. Wait for the next red letter. If we take it, we have the upper hand. We don't even have to go to the very front. We control the water. We control the negotiation. So how do you deal with somebody? Maybe they're a leader. Maybe they're just a respected individual within the organization who is undercutting attempts at change. Undercutting is a matter of degree, in a sense. And, and in, the, in the film, we're talking about a matter of degree. Gilliam is willing to see it only so far. When it goes further, he pays a price as well. So there is a sense of the the gradualism of change, and in, and in many ways, I think as a, as as practical professionals who see a lot of this, we see organizations pull back and shy away from what they know is the full dose, so to speak, or what their people would would consider to be the full dose, and go for something that maybe feels a little bit safer and a little bit easier. Yeah, I mean, I think that. When leaders within an organization make a commitment, both internally and to the public or stakeholders, shareholders, whoever their primary constituents are, there's an added accountability there, right? There's an ask to be held to the commitment that you're making. I think what's so complicated in in Snowpiercer is that double crossing that happens, right? Where you think that Gilliam is a good guy. And I have to admit, this is my second time watching the film. The first time was like seven or eight years ago. So I completely forgot the role that Gilliam plays. And he's such a beloved actor that I was like, oh, like this guy, like hero, right? And it's so disappointing when you find out that he has really been working behind the scenes um, to kind of create the ultimate end result of people on the train dying through this revolt. Oh, don't tell me you didn't know. Gilliam and I, our plan. Gilliam. Gilliam. The front and the tail are supposed to work together. He was uh, more than a partner, really. He was my friend. Bullshit. I don't believe you. Our original agreement was for the insurgency to end at the Ekaterina Tunnel. And I I think that sort of dual agenda is a really tricky one. And I think one that we often do see in a much, much less toxic way within organizations where leaders are having to play this really, really difficult role of being on leadership team, serving their board, serving their stakeholders or shareholders, and serving people within the organization. And sometimes the needs of those groups are really different like the needs of your board or your shareholders, especially if you're a publicly traded company, right? Those are going to be often quite different from what you're hearing from employees 
on your team in terms of priorities, in terms of where your focus should be as a leader. And so I don't think there's an, any intentional double crossing that we often see, but I think there is a really hard balance that leaders have to strike when they have multiple audiences who they need to keep happy. You know, just in having this conversation, I'm realizing that from, a, from Gilliam's point of view, he's actually the good guy, right? He is trying to maintain balance in the ecosystem and make sure that this train can keep going with the right amount of people. And so I'm sure in his mind, he's not undercutting change so much as he is ensuring that this, that this system can continue. Mm-hmm. Good point. That's one of the hardest things about this sort of conflict is that everyone believes that they're the good person. Everyone believes that they're doing the right thing and everyone believes that truth and all those things are on their side. And, and subjective, the subjective lens of personal experience makes that even harder, even when you're talking about different silos or functions or you know even competing credos within an organization this is starting to get into the philosophy right the the morals of leadership one of the themes that we see repeatedly throughout snowpiercer is this idea that leadership requires sacrifice you know very well that you're already our leader you have to accept that now How can I lead if I have two good arms? What what must people be willing to give up if they want to step into that position? So I have an answer for this, in my opinion. Trash or treasure? Um, I think that the only thing a leader should have to sacrifice is power in a situation. I think that the best leaders create more leaders within their organizations and they really empower folks within the organization to take on the work or the challenge at hand. And I don't think that should be done at the sacrifice of well-being, at the sacrifice of family or the other priorities that one has in their life, even if they are quite senior or the CEO of an organization. But I do think the sacrifice of power is one that's very, very hard for a lot of leaders to grapple with and to commit to. What a lovely insight. Thank you. I think that it's interesting to watch the, again, the train, the back and the front, the the leader from the top, the leader from the bottom. We have very contrasting images of leadership here in Gilliam versus Wilford. In Wilford, we have the messianic visionary, the Elon Musk style of leadership, who had this foresight to deliver us from this terrible thing that was happening that was that was so stupid of humanity, but unstoppable after that, versus the sacrificial leadership style of Gilliam, where he sacrifices of his body for, for so that other people can live. So you have this sort of fusion in the character of Curtis, which is a, a very struggle-driven individual leadership. He's for the people, but it, but he's he's moving forward himself. He's pulling everyone forward. He's urging them forward, even when the losses mount and things get tough. So it's interesting just the way that that's set up within the film. And I, I think certainly there are probably a breed of leaders now that have come about watching the country club, traditional Scotch-sipping uh, generation of individuals that have have been cozy with their power and have guarded it and have not given any, any of it away or even shared it, and they're thinking, 
I see that like model. I've made my I've made my reputation on that kind of blue-blooded, red-blooded, however blooded we want to describe it, full-blooded leadership style. Mm, blood. uh, but I know that there's a different way through it. Yeah, I had to I had to make this a little bit bloody. We're talking about Snowpiercer for crying out loud. There's a different way forward, and I'm going to embody them both in a sense where I'm going to try to thread the needle and and be a, a commander, so to speak. To, to, to use that very loaded militaristic term and at the same time be be relatable and and be someone that can be connected to where I came from and not not give up on my roots that'll be I think an enormous challenge for for leaders that are coming now who especially leaders who have gone through the ranks of an organization and have seen life at the back of the train and life at the front of the train to that point and Dara you mentioned leaders create other leaders. When Curtis is up at the front of the train, his people are still getting slaughtered in the back of the train. It seems like there aren't any leaders, or maybe all of the leaders came with Curtis to the front and and got killed off. How, how can you prevent this? How can you make sure that even as you progress, other leaders are being created within the organization? I mean, I think it starts with that distribution of power and decision-making, people feeling agency. Obviously, in Snowpiercer, it's a very extreme life-or-death situation, and you could also assume that those towards the back of the train are not the strongest physically overall, given the, the circumstances they've been living through. But I think within an organizational context, the more you can start people, start having people at all levels of the organization owning their work, owning the decisions that they are making, and really doing the, the work they've been hired to do, right? Ridding teams of micromanagement, letting people live into the roles that that they've been hired for. I think that's where cultivating that leadership really starts when, when people feel like they just have ownership in their own work to move it forward. As Curtis actually gets closer to the front of the train, more of his team is killed, right? He starts in the back, he's got a movement behind him, but as he moves forward, he loses more people as he goes. At the same time, he's not really picking up people in the upper classes. He doesn't seem to be adding people to his movement as he goes. And in the end, it's really just like a one-on-one confrontation between him and Wilford. How does this compare to the changes that we see within organizations? I think that there's a question about how organizational changes gain or lose momentum here. And we talked a little bit about repetition, that clackety-clack of the track continuing and feeling like we're still moving forward. We're still rocking and rolling with this. It's still, it's still going. Certainly that feels like a way to continue to build, build support. I think there's also the kind of sense of coalition building that needs to take place in an organization. Oftentimes this changes, you know, even though at Nobel, we espouse the view that, that change begins with individual change and individual habit change and team change there oftentimes is this view that, that the locomotive pulls the train, the, the executive leadership team or the, the first team or, you know, the, the C-suite or the individuals that are perpetuating this. And it is by fiat. It is, it is a role power dictated thing. Um, the metaphor for me falls apart there, which is okay. Uh, the train comes off the tracks. But the, <laughs> the, the point is that we need to continue to build allies and, and build coalitions within the organization across functions and show people what's in it for them. We are incredibly selfish creatures, even though we profess to be working together and collaborating all the time. 
And, and it doesn't hurt to help people visualize and, and see themselves in your vision, especially when you're trying to do something as large as continue driving a train for several decades after an apocalyptic snowstorm wipes out humanity. Which, again, I'm sure many people feel a real kinship with. I'm sure that's exactly how they feel when they wake up on a Monday morning. Well, Paula, when this happens, I just want to make sure Nobel is the in-house organizational design consultant for the Snowpiercer train. You're, jump so we can all you're jumping ahead. We're going to get to that question momentarily. Yeah, I think it just goes back to the very first question we started with, Paula, um, about how Curtis became the leader to begin with, right? He had the trust of the people at the back of the train. He built relationships with them. And I think with with those in towards the front of the train who aren't on board with the changes or with the revolt, they're complete strangers to him and vice versa, right? So when we look within organizations to Nick's point around that coalition building, you can't be a stranger to the people you're working with and the people who are going to be part of the change with you. And I think it sometimes means coming out of the ivory tower or, you know, spending that time in person, doing more town halls, getting FaceTime with people across the organization so that as a leader, it's not then a top down, I'm telling you what to do type of change, but something that people feel enrolled in and like they had a part to play in bringing the vision for change to life. And of course, there is no communication between the different members between the different classes of the train. They're very purposefully kept separate so that they can't unify, so that there isn't a feeling of solidarity. They're, they're kept siloed. The entire film is a progression from the very back of the train all the way to the front, to the engine, and there Curtis faces a final temptation. Wilford invites him to essentially become the new leader of the train, to, to take his place. I am old. I want you to take my station. It's what you always wanted. It's what Gilliam wanted, too. You must tend the engine. Keep her humming. Whereas Minsu, who's the Korean escape expert, essentially, he wants to blow open the doors and try and survive on the outside. In both situations, the choice is actually between accepting the status quo in a slightly different position versus trying something entirely new, right? Literally blowing open the doors of the train. What can leaders take from this? How can you make sure that when you are implementing change within the organization, it is it is real change? You're not just recreating what already exists. Well, I think there's there's the assumption here that a better world on the train couldn't exist, right? That if Curtis were to take on that conductor role or whatever it is that Wilford is is playing, that he wouldn't change the nature of the ecosystem. He wouldn't enable more people within the train ecosystem to thrive. Who knows? I mean, maybe that's what the TV show Snowpiercer is about. I haven't watched it yet. But I think that to, to your question, Paula, this question of disrupting the status quo completely and like blowing the door open and trying to make your way out in the freezing cold is one that is, I think, much scarier for people. It's scarier for those on the train. It's scarier for those within an organization who are on the precipice of change. I think often when, when you set out to disrupt the status quo, there isn't a known result that you're driving towards, right? There might be an idea of what you want to accomplish, but there's often less evidence for what that can be or become. 
and it can be a much scarier place for a leader to tread into. And the, the reality, I think, is that often when we see change, it is much more gradual, even if it is trying to shift away from status quo, even if it is, you know, more revolutionary, it's often still done in a gradual way because you have to be able to bring people along for the change with you. And it takes like one step at a time sometimes to get there. I think that you hit on an important point here, Daria, which is the evolution versus revolution implicit in this. Curtis at the helm would be a, an important evolution, but but an evolution nonetheless. Whereas Nam, who's this amazing futuristic everyman, there's a broader sense of what's possible, a broader imagination inside of his mind. And, you know, I think that he is the outsider. He is the weary addict, the untrustworthy, the unscrupulous and oftentimes that's the the place where where these sorts of shocking potentials come from. However, it is often the misfits and the the ones that truly don't fit in, the outcasts among the outcasts who are able to envision a future that's different and able to share that vision by hook or by crook even when wounded and and surrounded by the unwilling that are able to make things happen. Last question and Nick, you've already alluded to this. Yona and Timmy have survived the train explosion and they must now rebuild society from scratch. What would we recommend to them? How would we organize that organization? Or I suppose if you think that the train is going to reform, then what would we suggest to, to Wilford and co? Well, I think we only see Yona and Timmy emerge from the train, but given how big the train was, we have to assume there were some other survivors, right? And I think if we take the lessons of leadership that we've just talked about and think about how sort of this new society or organization might form in order to survive out in the cold together, there is sort of setting that the precedent of having distributed leadership across everyone, everyone having a role to play in the new future that they're building together. And I imagine setting some new norms together as a group, right? They've all existed in this controlled ecosystem with very, very hierarchical classes and separation, right? And so if you have people who are now going to coexist for the sake of survival, they're going to have to come together around some norms and ground rules and, and how they're really going to work together in order to ensure a future state can exist. They're going to have to also really retro retroactively construct their origin story so it doesn't just seem like the work of one person. So that you get a little more dap for Nam and the cook and the, the artist and all the others and Gilliam who contributed along the way. We've got to raise those folks up. So, yeah, they made it to the end. They were, they were at the front of the car and they died in heroic sacrifice. And, you know, it's important that we all stay together as leaders and don't just elect one person to lead the whole thing. Nice. So I think there's there's hope for the future of humanity, even though it's a it's a barren wasteland. Well, there are polar bears, so there's obviously hope. I actually don't think there's hope. Like, if I saw a polar bear, I would assume the polar bear is going to eat those those kids in a matter of time. So that's that's actually the sequel. Mm. But I, I guess we'll have to do a separate podcast on Snowpiercer, which is the new television series. So that, look look for that in a future episode. In the meantime... 
Thanks for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you liked what you heard. You can always find more episodes or get in touch with us at workoffiction.fm. Choo-choo. <laughs> Companies from movies and TV.